You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. The protests in the United States around race and policing have become a global phenomenon. Around the world, especially in American allies, you've seen large crowds demonstrating about what seems like it should be just an American issue, the use of force by American police against African Americans. This is not only affecting the way the U.S. is perceived among publics, it's actually creating new points of tension and conflict in international politics. American allies, like Germany and Australia, are angry at the way that their journalists have been mistreated by the police, and American adversaries, like Russia and China and North Korea, are using this as an example to highlight what they perceive as the hypocrisy of America's promotion of human rights abroad, and to score PR points. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to get into exactly what this means, the role that these protests are playing in international politics, and what this says about America's role in the world and about the way that international politics is changing in the Trump era. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Obviously, the the protests are, I mean, they're the dominant news issue in the United States and are, uh, again, just shockingly dominant around the world in terms of the amount of attention and the crowds they're turning out. I mean, you've seen mass demonstrations in, in the Netherlands, in New Zealand, in Germany. I mean, it's striking to me how much of a touchstone this has become in all of these different countries. And so I'm wondering, uh, how has this become so internationalized so quickly? Well, I think some of the protests that we've seen in solidarity in the UK and you know New Zealand and France and Germany have definitely been in part directly in solidarity with the United States and with the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. But there are also Black Lives Matter like affiliated movements in other Western countries. So in Belgium, the Black Lives Matter movement there organized uh, protests. So there's the direct kind of, we are going to come out in the streets in solidarity with these other people in the United States who are protesting against U.S. police violence against Black people and minorities. But then there's the other piece of it where, Zach, I think the touchstone was a great word to use, that it has also highlighted that a lot of other countries have a lot of work to do as well on, you know, policing and treatment of minorities, maybe not to the same degree that that we have in the United States. Police violence against Black Americans and against Americans in general is higher than pretty much every other peer democracy. 
But there are similar problems in a lot of countries. So, you know, in France, for example, there's a, a really direct parallel. Thousands of people took to the streets. Uh, that was on Tuesday. And they were protesting specifically outside Paris's criminal courts against the death of um, a guy. And i sorry, my French is terrible. Adama Traore. Um, but he died in police custody in 2016. And... His family claims that it was asphyxiation because of the way officers held him down. Law enforcement officials denied responsibility. So a very like similar direct kind of issue with police violence. And we've seen that, you know, in other countries. We've seen in Australia, they came out in solidarity, but, you know, people were being interviewed and were saying, yes, we're outraged about what's happening in Minneapolis, but really us guys home in Australia need to take a stand together because we can actually see the racism and injustice against our own people. And that was a protester in Australia speaking to Australia's ABC News. So it's touching off the broader, kind of, I don't know if reckoning is the right word because we don't yet know what's what's going to come out of it, but the recognition that this is something that is not just unique to the United States and that a lot of other countries have to deal with, you know, and need to address these inequities in policing in their countries as well. That's totally right. I think that's incredibly important. And I, I just want to focus on Europe for a little bit here because of Europe, of course, is, you know, historically the United States' big ally here. So obviously the slave trade went through Europe. Uh, and anyone who's ever heard us talk on this show about asylum seekers coming in from Syria leading to a backlash against immigrants will understand that Europe just has a really long history and even a modern history uh, of racism. And so these themes that we struggle with in the United States are pervasive and constant uh, on that continent. And specifically when we think of the cases um, similar to George Floyd, I just want to read a, a couple that came, that I came across in doing research for this. So like in 2011 in London, a guy named Mark Duggan, a black man, was shot and killed by the police. Uh, in France in 2005, you had uh, protests after the deaths of Buna Traore and Ziad Bena, two teenagers who were electrocuted in an electrical substation while trying to evade police. And that same year, Uri Jello, a Sierra Leonean asylum seeker, died at the hands of police in Dessau, Germany. That's just a couple of examples, but there are direct parallels here. And so the same struggles we have, the same sort of protests we're seeing, the same kind of instances. I mean, of course, there are always unique cases, but the general themes, all that has been happening in Europe too. And so add that, I would argue, and this this part is very much speculation, but add that with everyone's been held inside during the coronavirus, right? A lot of people's livelihoods have been also upended during the financial crisis of recent years. There's just been so much turmoil. Now you have this massive moment in which the United, uh, the entire United States has risen up uh, to go against police brutality. And then you see similar people who aren't in great positions and who are also dealing with similar issues elsewhere around the world go, this is the right time to rise up and do it. And then my last bit of speculation is, I also think there's a lot of anti-Trump sentiment happening here. But either way, uh, I think this sort of confluence of similar issues financial crisis slash coronavirus, putting people in worse positions and anti-Trump sentiment, all this has bubbled up into this specific moment that has now risen up everywhere. Uh, I think it's worth taking a step back here uh, and understanding the role that the concept of racism plays internationally. Because, uh, you know, obviously the notion that it is bad to be racist is a relatively contemporary idea if we're looking at the long sweep of international politics. Right. It is really only post-1945 and really after the 1960s that this became uh, a major part of our understanding of international relations. And a lot of that owes to the American civil rights movement. 
And uh, I mean, it's it's really the the twin legacies of the discrediting of the eugenics and and racialized politics of Europe prior to 1945 by the Nazis and the Holocaust, a sense that this was such a monstrous evil that the entire categories that underpinned it need to be rejected, combined with the American civil rights movement becoming such a, a symbol of freedom and justice and also of the, you know, changing the language and the way that we think about who counts in global politics, right? Scholars call this the diffusion of the anti-racism norm. And it's, it's uh, again, a relatively modern phenomenon, but it's striking how much it's taken hold. While, while racial politics are not dominant in the structure of European politics in the way that they are in the United States, obviously racism is, as we've been discussing on the show, a major thing there. It's just not as politically structuring or hasn't been until relatively recently, even more recently, as it is in the United States. The the concepts and the categories that that grew out of the American experience with race have become the way that the world discusses issues like this. So when you go to a, a you know an activist conference in the UK or Germany or Spain, insert Western European country, the language around racism is is very similar to what you'd see in an American conference or a Canadian conference. It's there's there's a shared vocabulary among um, not just academics but also ordinary citizens who adhere to a certain relatively left of center or in Europe sort of center set of norms, and uh, these ideas have have been playing a really important role in international politics for a long time. You know, one of the most notable examples is the international uh, boycott of South Africa during the anti-apartheid movement. Right, that was directly parallel in a lot of ways to the American civil rights movement. Um, And you can see the influence that that had on the way that activists and countries around the world approached the situation with apartheid. And now we're seeing that this has uh, a structuring impact, not just on the way that countries and leaders feel like they have to act, but the way that ordinary citizens engage with their governments and understand the situations in their own country, as per all the examples Alex was just talking about. Yeah, Zach, I I agree with you. I think I would add one other piece to that, the independence and decolonization movements that happened around the world, but particularly in Africa and Asia, post-World War II, 1945, up through the 1960s and 70s. And between 1945 and 1960, there were like three dozen new states, new countries in Africa and Asia um, that got either autonomy or outright independence from their European colonial rulers. So people rising up and and throwing off the yoke of oppressive governments that had controlled everything and exploited them for labor and resources, finally having their own voice and saying, no, like we are going to have autonomy, we are going to have independence. But but these things, I think it's important to note, are not independent of each other, right? Right. They're, they're all connected. Um, so you see, you know, with Palestinian, you know, liberation movements, you know, including some, you know, more violent groups, but also, you know, peaceful groups. You saw African-Americans connecting with Palestinian groups and, you know, going to Palestine. And you saw American civil rights leaders going to South Africa to discuss like apartheid. And you see the strikers in Ireland going to South Africa and being a part of apartheid, you know, anti-apartheid protests. So, so these are all really connected. And I think, you know, it helps kind of understand today what we're seeing that, again, these are all 
independent individual protests that are happening in France, in Germany, in the UK, in Canada. But they also are all kind of connected by this this tissue and this language that you were talking about, Zach, of, you know, anti-colonialism and racism and these broader themes that have undergirded a lot of the violence, meaning these are fighting back against that violence that have, you know, undergirded a lot of international politics over the last, you know, several, several decades. I think it's also worth noting that this isn't just an issue of mass movements, right? It's also uh, creating tensions between governments. And this is because it's not just that leaders of American allies and leaders in peer democracies find uh, what's happening in the U.S. right now abhorrent, though they do in a remarkable press conference, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about this, and then he paused for 21 seconds before figuring out that that he could describe himself as watching in horror and consternation as to what's happening in the United States. But it's also that citizens of foreign countries who are in the United States right now are directly uh, under threat, right? So the most prominent examples are Australian and German journalists who have been on camera and on air attacked by American police officers. Yeah, I wrote on the Australian case. So two reporters from Seven News, a, a pretty prominent channel over there in Australia, they they were covering the Monday Lafayette Square protest live. And then the U.S. Park Police and Secret Service and et cetera advanced forward and led to the stunning scenes that we all saw with, with tear gas and pepper bullets. This, is, this is the one right outside the White House where police cleared protesters to make way for Trump's photo op. And there's video not only from the Australian uh, team, but also from from onlookers in which you see a park police officer like punch the camera, berate the team and and force them to flee. There's some debate as to whether they were shot directly, but either way, uh, they had to be dispersed and they, they went away and they were filmed. This is all filmed live by the by the team. And they're talking to the anchors being like, I, you know, what's going on here? Like we, we were fine. We were just filming. We got attacked. We moved out of the way. And it has led to a massive, massive backlash in Australia to the point that you now have the conservative government in Australia, which is pretty close to the Trump administration, it should be said, specifically calling for not only an apology from the U.S. embassy in Canberra, which it did receive, but also an investigation into precisely what happened. And it seems like that that's happening. The park police put two officers on administrative duty. So it looks like what the Australian government called for is happening. But let's be clear that this actually is causing quite a bit of tension still between Australia and the United States. And why this matters is, of course, Australia is a massive, massive, massive ally of the U.S. To condense it, it is perhaps it's one of its biggest partners in countering China right now, which is a big uh, goal of the, of the Trump administration. You might have heard about and it. also is one of... Right. And is also one of our Five Eyes partners, this consortium, strong consortium of intelligence sharing between the U.S., Australia, and three other countries. So for this to be happening, especially between two friendly governments, that one incident is harming U.S. foreign policy in a very clear way. I just wanted to add something. We mentioned Justin Trudeau's statement in Canada saying that he looked on in horror, which is a, you know, a helpful statement, and I'm glad he said that. However, I have... Obviously, like Alex and Zach, been following these protests uh, around the world and, and in the U.S. very closely, on in particular on social media. And in one of the recent protests in Toronto that was both in solidarity with the protests in the U.S., but were also, again, about you know specific police violence, police cracked down really hard on that protest, dispersing using you know what they call less lethal methods, so tear gas or other chemical irritants. And I saw a lot of people in Canada who were at that protest 
tweeting things like, hey, Americans, stop saying that everything's so much better in Canada, um, you know, or hey, Canadians, stop saying that this wouldn't happen here and condemning the U.S. without condemning your own police. So, you know, uh, at the same time Trudeau was saying this, police in his own country were doing functionally the same thing and cracking down hard on protesters violently. You know, I don't want to I don't want to give Canada a full pass on this here. I don't know uh, if you all can hear this, but as Jen was talking about that, a helicopter was flying over my house in Washington. A very nice reminder that this is <laughs> very far from over. Um, right. We're going we're gonna to take a quick break at this point. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the way that this is playing, not just in advanced democracies, but in the propaganda arms of America's authoritarian rivals. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the international politics of the George Floyd protests and generally the movement against police brutality. Uh, and we've been focusing so far on mass movements in democracies and the way that the leadership of foreign democratic states have reacted to what they're seeing in the United States. But there's another side to this story, which is how authoritarian countries are treating this. Because obviously, they're not going to be like, it's terrible that uh, state security forces are cracking down on protesters. But but actually, they kind of are. In a weird twist, a number of the world's most notoriously repressive states, notably Iran, China, and Russia, are using this as an opportunity to score PR points against the United States. It happens to be the case that today, as we're recording this, is the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown. And uh, yet, somehow, the Chinese government is trying to take the moral high ground. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we can just start with China, which you brought up. So in China, state and social media have been basically just living it up and and loving what's going on in the U.S. for some very specific reasons, particularly Hong Kong. They have been 
commenting, um, for example, Chinese media condemned the U.S. for deploying weapons of war against protesters. And it's kind of this weird mix, right? So so people are, are condemning the U.S. for doing this, but at the same time, they're... Chinese state media is also trying to thread this needle with saying, like, see, that's how you treat protesters, right? Like, this is correct. Mm. You know, the United States is uh, is being hypocritical. The State Department's hypocritical when they say that we can't crack down on the same kind of rioting in Hong Kong, right? That's all we're trying to do. And it's great that they finally recognize that this is the correct way to treat violent protesters. And that's all we're doing. How come it's okay for you? But, you know, when it comes to us dealing with our own people, you sanction us and you internationally condemn us and all of this. James Palmer, who writes a, a China newsletter for foreign policy, basically said it's not, they're not really sure what side they're on. They're kind of on both sides, which is very strange. <laughs> um, there was a Singaporean cartoon that went viral in China pointing out the hypocrisy of, of politicians who, in the U.S., who call the same behavior by different names in different countries. So yeah. um, Senator Tom Cotton in particular, who just earlier this week wrote an op-ed calling for the military to crack down on on the protesters and people rioting in the US. He has also been one of the, you know, most prominent voices against, you know, China and saying that they need to stop cracking down on protesters. Uh, and we've seen this similar thing in Iran. It's not just cotton though. I don't want to excuse China in any 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 way. Let's be clear. But they, their trolling does have a little basis in fact here because you do have Cotton saying, hey, China, do not crack down on Hong Kong protesters. And yet writing that New York Times op-ed and tweeting constantly about sending active duty troops to, to quell rioters um, throughout the U.S. You have Marco Rubio doing the same and Donald Trump doing the same. Right. So it's not so surprising that the Chinese would latch on to this. Well, it's, um, it's, it's worth noting, Alex, to that point, that the U.S. government is is right now engaged in a diplomatic tit-for-tat with China, with escalating threats and reprisals, uh, discussion of sanctions uh, over China's newest move in Hong Kong, uh, which is basically to seize security control over the city, which had previously been autonomous in that regard, at least semi-autonomous in that regard, under the um, a one-nation-two-system policy that had been in place there. And so the U.S. is trying to call out China, really, like, actively, the State Department and the foreign policy arms of the U.S. government are, are, are challenging China's moves in Hong Kong as authoritarian, as an unacceptable consolidation of state power at the expense of democratic and peaceful protesters. And at the same time, the same U.S. government is at home treating democratic, peaceful protesters as rioters, right? There's there is very real hypocrisy here, but there's also very real hypocrisy from China. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, they obviously don't care about democratic rights, nor minority rights, right? You've heard them come out and talk about how, well, we respect black lives here in China when they are treating their their minorities, uh, particularly the Muslim Uyghur minority, so cruelly, harshly in a way that, uh, I mean, literally putting them in concentration camps. It's... The the bad faith here is really striking, but but you know if you care about these kinds of human rights violations, what's notable is the U.S. that is supposed to be challenging them and is trying to do that at least when it comes to Hong Kong has seriously undermined its moral authority by doing such high profile crackdowns on its own protesters. There was actually a really stark moment this week uh, that I think puts a pretty fine point on it. Right after the Trump administration used force to clear those peaceful protesters away from the White House so that Trump could have his photo op. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo 
met personally with survivors of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Yeah. Like, the split screen on that is just stunning to think about because it was literally a crackdown on pro-democracy protesters. In, in something this, called Lafayette Square, to put too yeah. fine a point on it. I, I saw this amazing tweet, and I apologize that I, I don't know whom to attribute it, but there are some people who look at the lesson of Tiananmen Square and identify with the tank. You know, there's that famous picture of the tank um, and, you know, Tank Man, this this protester who's just standing defiantly in front of, you know, these huge line of military tanks coming up against him. In terms of, like, the the moral standing that, that you were talking about, Zach, like, America has has traditionally, at least, you know, rhetorically, if not always in practice, tried to stand up for for the, the tank man, right? The guy standing in front of the tank. And yet right now there are, you know, not tanks, but uh, armored vehicles from, you know, the National Guard and from, you know, police uh, literally like rolling through the streets of Washington, D.C. And so it's, it's a really stunning kind of split screen moment. And it really harms U.S. ability to have moral standing to call out these other countries because they are able to weaponize it and say, but look what you're doing. It, it's also worth noting that these statements, and you've seen similar statements from the Russian and, and Iranian leadership, right? They they are, it's not as um, dramatic as China because there isn't currently a conflict over uh, a crackdown on human rights in as direct a fashion, though there's always running tensions with Russia and Iran over this stuff. But I, I think the Russia example is particularly instructive because it's not a new thing for the Russians to do this, right? This was a major feature of Cold War competition between the U.S. and, and Soviet Union then. The Soviets would, in their propaganda arms, constantly call attention to racism in the United States and during the civil rights movement, the mistreatment of protesters as a way of pointing out that American claims to respect human rights, equality, autonomy, et cetera, were all shams for a racist capitalist imperialist system that doesn't deserve your trust, respect, or legitimacy. What's interesting to me about the Cold War example is that that placed significant pressure on American leadership to reform its race practices. Like, there's a lot of documentary evidence from the Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy administration, and the Johnson administration that presidents and top-level policymakers really cared about the way this was playing into Soviet propaganda, and this partially informed, not entirely, it wasn't the key causal factor, but it shaped the way that they thought about their response to the civil rights movement and made them more sympathetic to protesters, demonstrators, to the demand for black equality and an end to segregation than they might have been otherwise, right? The strategic competition with the Soviet Union demanded reforms at home in order for the U.S. to maintain its international image. And now at a time when we're talking about a new Cold War with China, we're talking about uh, increased geostrategic competition with Russia in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe, and we're talking about constant struggle with Iran and, and Iran's treatment of protesters given on and off again protests against that regime, that that logic doesn't seem to be playing a similar role in the way that the American government is thinking about the current protests. So permit me a domestic aside for a moment. There's an example that I think really encapsulates this. So when Trump is talking about sending active duty military around the country, he has the authority to do so under something called the Insurrection Act from 1807, which basically lets him send troops wherever he wants for law enforcement practices. In the 50s, Dwight Eisenhower invoked the Insurrection Act to protect civil rights. After Brown v. Board of Education, the then Arkansas governor basically said, like, I do not want desegregated schools. 
Eisenhower, after fighting with Arkansas for a while, sent the 101st Airborne into Little Rock to accompany the nine black children so they could go into the school and, and be safe from protesters. This was done, as Zach correctly noted, as part of this sort of gr in a grander context of competition, but it was also just a notion of this is federal law and you will follow federal law. And the reason I bring this up, again, I know it's a domestic point, but like what happened then was presidents using the military to protect civil rights, and now you have Trump using the force of state, and National Guard in this point, and not active duty, but still to violate protesters' uh, rights and, and basically turn D.C. into a, a police district. I'm not saying police state because it's not a state. When other countries see these actions, and they're aware of this history too, uh, let's be clear, they are able to find the, all these fractures and are able to poke at us constantly, and then they use it as a weapon. So anytime the United States goes, hey, follow human rights, follow the correct methods, they go, no, look at what's happening here. We're giving them ammunition in a sense, public relations ammunition to, to shoot right back at us and making U.S. foreign policy harder in the long run. I'm really glad you mentioned about you know how it makes U.S. foreign policy harder. In the Iranian example, the Supreme Leader Khamenei has been tweeting about the George Floyd protests, actually using the hashtags I can't breathe and hashtag George Floyd. Um, but there was one tweet in particular that I think is, is a really useful example of how this can be used in a specific foreign policy way. So on June 3rd, Khamenei tweeted, the crime committed against this black man is the same thing the U.S. government has been doing against all the world. They have done the same in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Vietnam, and many other countries. This is the U.S. government's nature and character that is being exposed today, hashtag George Floyd. And he accompanied it with a photo of, this, you know, a screenshot of the killing, the death of George Floyd, um, but also a photo from Abu Ghraib, the prison where U.S. forces literally tortured prisoners, and several other really gruesome photos. I would definitely not recommend looking at it. But Khamenei is specifically talking about Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, for a very specific reason. In Iraq and Syria in particular, you know, Iran is trying and in many ways succeeding in pushing out U.S. influence. And by saying, look, this is what the U.S. is doing in these countries, right? And painting the U.S. as the bad guys who are, you know, torturing people. The, the flip side is that is trying to exonerate Iran in these places. And I just want to be really clear. Um, Khamenei has zero moral standing to say this. He literally sent in Iranian military forces to support the Assad regime in Syria that was literally gassing his own people. And I don't mean tear gas. I mean the kind of gas that kills, right? Illegal weapons of war. In Iraq, they're undermining democracy, right? In every conceivable place in the Middle East, Iran is doing a lot of really, really bad things and supporting a lot of really, really bad actors. But by tweeting this out, Khamenei is able to, you know, try to flip the script, essentially, and say, look, we knew all along that the U.S. was evil. This is why we're trying to push them out of all these areas. You should trust us. And, you know, he went on to do several other tweets talking about how the people's slogan of I can't breathe is the heartfelt words of all nations against which the U.S. has committed many atrocities. Like, he's not using this to, to advocate for black lives, just to be clear. He's using this as a weapon against the United States in geopolitical struggle in the Middle East. There's a growing body of belief now, especially among the left, something that's called progressive foreign policy. And we've talked about it a bit on the show, 
One pillar of it is that the United States will not have the moral authority to speak on the values that it that it holds dear unless it actually reinforces them at home. And so when the world sees the actions at Lafayette Square outside the White House, when it sees a George Floyd being killed by police, et cetera, et cetera, the argument goes it'll make it harder for the United States in order to espouse those values and defend them and protect them and promote them around the world. And I'm imagining that this is quite a moment for that the people who hold that view, that progressive foreign policy view, that they're kind of pointing to this saying, this is what we've been talking about, that this is exactly the moment when if we do not uh, you know, promote racial progress in the U.S., less police brutality, um, perhaps better rights for minorities overall, that then that kind of progress elsewhere will also suffer. And I think that if we're if we're looking at a macro problem here, uh, I think that's it. And in, in that the United States is losing a lot of its moral authority in this moment and because of the images that are being beamed everywhere. And it will not only make foreign policy harder, as we've just been saying, but it'll frankly could make the world just worse in the sense that these values that we hold dear, that we believe could lead to a better life for millions of people around the world, that the most powerful country on earth now has less ability to protect those people. With that dispatch from an embattled republic south of Canada, uh, we're going to leave you. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who has been super helpful as always in getting this out the door. And I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, y'all. And we will talk to you next week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.